So we uh, begin our look at the Psalms. New Life Church has been doing this for the last seven years. This has been kind of our, our plan of what we do during the summer. Uh, we take a break from our verse by verse through a book of the Bible, which currently we're doing Matthew. I know we took a couple weeks off to do the gospel, but we're doing this for the summer, and then in the fall we'll start right into the Sermon on the Mount. So this is our, our, our chance to kind of breathe in some different authors, some different tunes um, as we go into our summer months. So to start this off, I want to spend a little bit of time, I'll put my teacher cap back on, and I want to teach you guys a little bit about the book of Psalms, because I think it'll help us not only going forward throughout the summer, but it will also help in today's sermon and then any devotional reading you will be reading. And I, I encourage you to read ahead. So next week, Psalm 78 is what we'll be doing. Today is Psalm 77, um, and we're going to be going through about Psalm 86, I think is the last one we'll hit this summer. So there's your homework. See, I told you, a teacher in me. So the book of Psalms is a collection of Hebrew poetry. It is words of the Bible put to music. When we sing the Psalms, we engage lots of different aspects of who we are. Not only do we engage our minds, but we engage our hearts and we engage our emotions. Uh, a Psalm is a, a song, a religious song. This book is literally the worship book of the Bible. It is a, a list of worship choruses. Um, they don't put any music notes with it. Instead, they reference songs that have been long been forgotten, which we'll have to hear David's greatest hits when we get to heaven um, someday in the future. These songs run the gamut of all human emotions. We've got incredible highs where the, the king is coming to his throne to the incredible lows of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there, every single emotion in between. There's 150 psalms, and so if you really wanted to get going with this, you can read five psalms a day, every day during the month, and you'll get through the entire book of psalms in one month. And if it's a 31-day month, you could read Psalm 119 on that 31st day, because it'll take most of the day. Most of the psalms are anonymous. Almost half the psalms are written by David. Uh, David is, is known for his writing and his music. Some psalms are written by Solomon. There's even one written by Moses, probably the first psalm to be written in the entire book of Psalms. Some psalms are written by worship leaders, such as Ethan, the sons of Korah, Haman, whose name looks a lot like He-Man, but I don't think it's the cartoon character. And today, Asaph, the, the, the worship leader, he wrote the most of all the people not named David, and he wrote 12. So today we're going to look at one of Asaph's psalms. Psalms tell us who God is, and how to approach God. It, it, there's two processes that are always evident in every psalm. There is the who is God, and then how am I to respond to God. Sometimes it's very clear, right? We, we are to say these words in response. Other times, it's not so clear. But in all of them, they are there. There are different types of psalms, just like there's different songs, different genres. You've got your sad songs, so those are your country music. You've got your mopey songs, that's the emo, if you're not familiar with what that is, ask a 20-something. Uh, there are fun songs like pop, there are songs that still tell stories like Johnny Cash. But there are always one, well, there's, there's always one thing that happens when you read a psalm. It's either recounting emotions or it's stirring up emotions. 
There's always some emotions involved. Bible scholars classify the Psalms into five categories. Laments, Thanksgiving Psalms, Praise Psalms, Wisdom Psalms, and Royal Psalms. Today, we are going to be hitting a Lament Psalm. And the thing about lament psalms is that it's not like this is a one-off. It's not like there's only one or two laments. As a matter of fact, over a third of all the psalms are laments. And I think that's important for us to get right at the outset, is it's okay to be not content with what's going on in your world. It's okay. The psalms give us permission. Now, I don't think that means that we look at it and we go, Man, one-third of all the psalms are lament. Does that mean one-third of my life's going to be lament? No, that's not what the psalm is teaching us. But the psalms are teaching us that there is a place for crying out to the Lord and saying, why is this happening? And they give us examples and words on how to do that. So as we look at the psalms, we need to understand the kind of psalm we're reading. And this is a lament. Primarily a lament is a calling out to the Lord in a time of trouble. And it's not just calling out with vague terms. Many times it's very specific. I'm feeling this, Lord. Come, come help me. This psalm is one of those ones where it could be an individual lament, meaning I'm calling out, or it could be a community lament. A community lament just means the whole community is lamenting about it. And the reason why we don't know on this one is, yeah, Asaph's talking about his problem, but if you look, it says, to the choir master, which means this is to be sung by everybody. This is not a soloist up on stage singing their problems. It's the entire community singing their problems. This psalm is right smack dab in the middle of the psalms. The book of Psalms is broken up into five books, called book one book two book three book four book five they use their creativity on the psalms not the title these books some people think correspond to the first five books of the old testament so we are in the middle of deuteronomy i mean sorry leviticus (laughs) we're in the middle of leviticus according to that but it's probably more likely that these psalms were all gathered together because they're all around a, a specific theme the psalms that we're in right now are all dealing with different crises in the life of the person who wrote the psalm. Now, not all of them are laments, not all of them are dirges, but there is kind of a tone throughout this section. And so when we come to that, we need to make sure we understand that the psalmist is going to start with, God feels far away, God feels distant, and then he's going to go from there. See, we have this idea that, that the only way we can approach God is if we're in our happy mood, or our, our praise mood. And so we have to, I have to be happy, I'm happy, I'm happy. And, and, and there's no place for me to be sad. There's no place for me to be grieving. There's no place for me to, to come to the Lord with what I'm really feeling. We put on this veneer of everything's okay. And, and honestly, that's not what we see in Scripture. There are times when it's not okay. And it's okay, and we have permission to say that. We don't just come to God with one emotion, we come to God with a plethora of emotions. One author said this about Psalms of Lament. Instead of Psalms of Lament displaying a disbelief, it instead demonstrates how deep our relationship is with the Father. Because we don't go and complain our griefs and our emotions to complete strangers, we do those to the people that we are the most intimate with. And so there as we read this, it it is unsettling at times to hear, I moan, and I I think of you, God, and it doesn't help. And we think of that, and we kind of get a little squirmy, and we go, 
that's not right. It should be, you think of God and everything's better. But that's real life. There are times when we cry out and there's no answer, or at least it seems like there's not. So these laments are important to us. I want to read you a quote from a famous pastor. If I told you his name, everybody here would know it. He's dead now. But this is what he said. I suppose that some brethren neither have much elevation or depression. I could almost wish to share their peaceful life. So he says, some of you are high and some of you have not very many lows. I wish that was me. Look what he says next. He says, for I am much tossed up and down. And although my joy is greater than most of men, my depression of spirit is such as few can have any idea. And this guy is a giant in the Christian faith. He is one of my heroes. And yet he says, I am so depressed. So this despair and this depression has nothing to do with our immaturity or maturity or our theological standing or how the Lord uses us. Instead, it's just a fact of life. There's going to be times we're going to feel this. In the crucible of life, we're going to find times when we are going to have discouraging despair. Many times this will lead to a form of devastating depression. No one is exempt. There's not a person here who is exempt from this. Every single one of us can have that. You know, for me, in the last two years, there have been periods of depression and anxiety. Now, it's not at all an extreme case. If anything, it was extremely mild compared to what a lot of people deal with, but it did shock me. It surprised me because I had never felt that before. I mean, you know, you have your ups and downs, sometimes related to how much caffeine is in your system, but, but honestly, I'd never had a, a row of downs where I just felt like I couldn't get going. One person said, it's like having the black dog of de- despair sitting on your chest. I think that's a pretty good depiction of what it feels like when you're in this type of despair. But there is hope. Unlike a lot of sermons, I'm not going to save the hope to the end. We're going to get to it right now, okay? And then I'm going to show you through Scripture where that is. And so here is the hope, and we see it in this psalm. When we get into these spells, these sinking spells, where we just feel the pressure of the despair of things not going the way we want, we have to discipline ourselves to refocus on what God has done, what God has done in the past. See, times of distress can be faith-building. They can be soul-strengthening if we turn the right way, if we return to what God has already done for us. Many times we try to well up emotions, I shouldn't feel this way, or I feel happy and I'm just going to tell myself that. That doesn't work. That's not what the psalmist puts forth. It may have a a temporary good feeling, but the psalmist says, if you want to move on, you got to remind yourself again and again of what God has done for you. And not only for you, but for all of us. This is how I got through it. My wife was an instrument in reminding me of the things that God had done saying, look at what God did. And and the thing is, sometimes you, you have to go way back because the thing you're in Maybe the thing that God is deconstructing and depressing you in, so you can't remind you of the most recent, you might have to go back even farther. Remember when you were this age. Remember when God did that. If he did that for you, he's going to get you through this. And spoiler alert, we've all got something we can look back on that if God did that, he can get us through 
what we're through, going through right now. And that's that cross. Yes, it was 2,000 years ago, but it is, it is now. It is what we live in now. So this psalm is showing these steps. The, the psalm, my wife is so on board with what the Lord's teaching in this psalm that she just did it without even quoting the psalm. I got to go to the psalm to show you guys though, okay? So the psalm shows this. The psalm says, look at you're in despair. There's no hope. You try to remind yourself and make yourself feel good and it doesn't work. But there is hope when I turn to what God has done. See, these psalms are giving words to our experiences. Did you know that Jesus quotes from the psalms more than any other book in the Bible? Jesus said, these are the inspired words of God. They, they shape the way we think. They mold our, our emotions and our hearts, and they allow us to feel. They allow us to experience, and then they point us in the direction we need to go. See, our Bible does not give us pat answers. Just pray this, and you'll be fine. Just say these words, and you'll be fine. Instead, it meets us where we are, and it gives us real change. Not the change that this world has, which is just a little change here and there, but true, deep-down change. So we need to change the way we are thinking about where we are right now. And this is not just for those of you right now that are suffering. Because like I said, every single one of us is going to experience this, either really deep compared to the people sitting next to you, or not as deep. But it's coming. Every single one of you. So now's the time to put in the work to know, what do I do when this happens? And even more importantly, because I'm speaking to y'all, is you're going to have to help each other do this as well. Because when we're in the despair, it's not always easy to see a path out. And that's where we as fellow believers can come along and help each other and know what to do. So today we're allowed to feel the distress. We're allowed to cry out. We're allowed to think God is uncaring, but go to God to find out that he's not. So today, we're going to look at that. So that's the, that's the story that I'm going to go with for this entire time. And now I'm going to show you in the psalm where we see that. So here's our big idea. Our big idea is that comfort is found in the midst of our agonizing present distress only by meditating on God's saving work in times past. Comfort. There is comfort out there. It's found in one place. Even though we're in the midst of an agonizing present distress, it is found only by meditating, thinking deeply on God's saving work in times past. See, God is our shepherd, and, and when he feels far off, we cannot trust our feelings because our feelings will not tell us the truth. Instead, we must trust in the truth that God will not forsake us. He will not leave us. And then by knowing what he's done, and what we know what he will do. A uh, psalm scholar named Trimper Longman said, it, this is a prayer of someone gripped in an impossible situation of trouble. Human strength is of no avail. He has nowhere else to turn but to God, whom at the time he feels disappointment in. There is a turn, but it's not usual. What, what is usual is that he gives us a reason for his turn. He says, I am disappointed right now, God, but I know you brought us out of Egypt, so I know you're going to get through this because the Egypt was a lot harder than what I'm dealing with. And that's the picture that we see here. 
And so this, this psalm can be broken down really easily um, into five steps. And we're going to walk through these steps. The first one is the despair. And these will be up in again in a minute. And I'm going to expound on each one. So I'm just going to preview it, though. We start with Asaph's despair. He says, I cannot sleep. I cannot be awake. I can't do anything. And then we see desperation where he calls out to God with these questions that a good believer should have the answers to, but he's questioning. He says, what, God, are you mad? Why aren't you being like God? And then we see the determination where he says, I am going to set my mind on truth. And then we see this declaration, this wonderful end of the psalm, where he sings about all the things that God did in the Exodus, and talking about thunder and lightning and walls of water, incredible pictures and then finally, we get to us, and that is our decision. What are we going to do? See, this, this psalm, it, it has some words that are repeated over and over again. Remember and meditate, and these words go hand in hand. It means to think back on over and over again. It's not just, oh yeah, God did something for me, great. No, it's, I'm going to keep this before me over and over again. So the first one, despair. This is verses 1 through 3. I'm sorry, one through six. We see it in verse one. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. Now, a little aside, a selah just is a word that we think means to pause and ponder while the music plays. It's a think deeply on this. It's take a breath and think. So look at this, this, this verse one, the actions here. He cries aloud twice. He stretches out his hands. And then he says he moans. He says his spirit is fainting. This is not a little passing depression. This is, this is intense. He's losing sleep over this. One translation of verse 1 says, with my voice to God, I kept screaming. That's the picture we have here. This is, this is absolutely letting it all out to God. The message translates verse, verse 2 as saying, I found myself in trouble and went looking for my Lord. My life was an open wound that wouldn't heal. When friends said, everything will turn out all right, I didn't believe a word they said. This is a raw, open wound as Asaph is writing this. This is not something that he's gotten past and he's just moved on. It's raw. It is painful. It hurts. So what is this problem? He doesn't tell us. And I love that about this psalm. It's not that, oh, I was being bullied or, oh, I lost my job or someone I know is sick. Instead, it's just open-ended. And guess what that does? That means we're right there. Because every single one of us is going to experience this at some point. It says, when I remember God, look at how he, when he thinks of God in this state, it's not a comfort. He, he says, well, I'm going to think about God. And it doesn't comfort him, it makes it worse. Charles Spurgeon writes, and when the soul is sick, a gracious soul may get sick in this way, that the very thoughts of God become a trouble. And that's what we see here, is Asaph goes, well, I'm going to think about God. And the more he thinks about God, the more he goes, oh, oh, that doesn't help. Oh. He doesn't say why, but he just it doesn't help him at this point. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. 
I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So what he's saying here is he's saying, I, I, can't, rem I can't speak, and I'm trying to recall past feelings, and those feelings don't help. He's trying to recall, oh, do you remember when I was in this worship service and I raised my hands and I felt the Lord's presence? I want to think about that. And it doesn't help. And he goes, well, remember how happy I was when fill in the blank? That doesn't help. This agonizing present is overwhelming all of his past feelings. And the more he, the more he thinks about it, it goes from bad to worst. That opening quote I read you guys about the man who said he was the deepest in the deepest depression. That was Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon dealt with despair and depression for most of his adult life. As a brand new pastor, he was about 21 years old. He'd been married for 11 months. His wife had just given birth to twin boys with some minor complications, and he walked into his pulpit to preach. It would be no, no shock to say that his first year in ministry was difficult way more difficult than dealing with a pandemic, way more difficult than dealing with anything any long line of first-year preachers have dealt with. Because on that Sunday, the week after his boys were born, he walked in to preach, and as he was preaching, the upper balcony, someone yelled, fire. And there was a massive stampede that hurt over 100 people and killed seven of them. How do you think Charles Spurgeon felt in that these people were in his church and they came to church to listen to him and they died and either went into eternity in heaven or eternity in hell at that moment? The pressure on him as a 21-year-old. What were you doing when you were 21? And he wanted to give up. And that week he spent time in prayer and anguish burying the people that had come to listen to him preach that week. And you know what he did the next Sunday? He preached again. And the Sunday after that, he preached again. And he kept going. Later in his life, his health was poor. He kept deteriorating as he got closer to going to visit the Lord. At some points, he could barely write. He could barely walk. He would spend all week in bed and then get enough strength to walk up to the podium on Sundays, only preaching one time each week after having preached six or seven times a week earlier in his life. And we like to think that, that this depression and this despair is only for the spiritually immature, only for those who have a baby faith, or those who don't have enough faith. You're telling me Charles Spurgeon didn't have enough faith to deal with the despair and the depression in his life? If we're honest, we view despair and this, this, this dark feelings, we view it like the health and wealth gospel. If only I have a little more faith, then it will go away. But that's not the way it works. That's not the way the Bible lays it out. Instead, we are to see things rightly, which is we need to cling to our Savior in the midst of what we're experiencing. That's the point. That's the solution. Not that if I only have enough faith, God will pull me out of it. No, if I cling to my Savior, I will be walked through it with my Savior. That's what Asaph and Spurgeon are talking about. So let me show you that. The psalmist moves from his despair into its natural sibling, desperation. Verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? 
Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Selah. I know you said, I, I said I was going to show you how Asaph got out of this, and we've actually gone deeper down, haven't we? But see, this, this, this stanza is where Asaph hits rock bottom. He's hit rock bottom where he is questioning now everything. One of the things we need to realize is when someone is going through this dark night of the soul, there's going to be questions that they should have answers to as believers, but they come out anyways. Notice what does not happen here. At the end of verse 9, there's not dot, 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 Asaph died because God struck him down. See, God can handle our questions. And many times we rush in and, oh, no, don't, don't, don't ask that question about God. You don't want to get God mad at you. Instead, what we see here is we see Asaph asks these questions and is able to say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. These rhetorical questions, really, in essence, he's saying, God, you're not acting like God to me. You're acting like somebody else. This is not the way you promised me it would be. The psalmist even wonders, is God mad at him? See, we need to understand is that it's okay to ask these questions out of desperation. But it's not okay to stay there. See, Asaph doesn't let himself stay there because Asaph preaches the good news to himself that there is a God that loves him and there is a God that cares for him and a God that's with him right now. This Psalm 77 is Asaph trying to breathe through this, this trial. The fight of faith constantly requires us to differentiate between our feelings and the truth. See what God is saying, and I love that one author wrote it this way. God is saying, you don't have to pre-sort everything. Bring all of that mess to me. I want you to cast your cares on me and your anxieties. You don't have to be the hero. You don't have to keep your chin up. You don't have to smile. You don't have to be strong. Put away your glossy brochure, non-real Christianity, and come and fall into my arms and know that I am with you in your trial. That's, that's the story of this psalm. It's that God is right there with us. You know, we think about it. We, we go every single day, we have good feelings and bad feelings. We have some days where we feel up and we have some days where we feel down. On those up days, these questions we would answer with, yeah, God's good, yeah, God's this. But in the down day that Asaph's feeling, these questions are insurmountable because of his feelings, because of what he's dealing with. See, we can't base what we believe on God based on our experiences and our feelings. We have to base it on truth. And this is what we see Asaph do in verses 10 through 15, where he is determined. His determination is, I am going to grab a hold of my God. Verse 10, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. See, our emotions are not a good barometer of how close the Lord is to us. 
And, and Asaph gets this. He's not relying on past feelings. He's relying on past facts, past actions of the Lord. Instead of turning to feelings, he turns to reality and to truth. And he turns to not only the truth that he's experienced, but he's turned to the truth that they've all experienced. This is a, a, a psalm that is sung before the nation of Israel. And he says, guys, I know you're all going through stuff, but remember the exodus. God brought us through the water. We got through. And it's the same for us. And I say, I know you're all going through stuff, and I know there are things that are overwhelming you, but remember the cross. Remember the chaos around the cross. And Christ cuts through death with his life, death, and resurrection and what he did on the cross. And that's meant to encourage us because he went through that, not for himself alone, but for us. He went through that for us, just like he brought them through the Exodus. One author says, lash yourself to the truth that you see here in verse 10, when he turns and says, I will appeal to God, his right hand. He rehearses this, this, this Pharaoh's army, and we remember the story, Pharaoh had, uh, the Egyptians had subjugated the Israelite people, and after 10 plagues, Pharaoh finally says, enough, get out of here. And then as soon as they leave, he goes, I lost, my, I lost my slaves, I need them back. And so he sends his army after them, and Moses leads them to the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, they're stuck between the sea and the armies. And God says, watch this. And he parts the Red Sea, and they walk across on dry land. And then as the Pharaoh's armies are closing in, using that same path, the water comes in and destroys the most mighty army on the face of the earth. And this is, what, this is what Asaph is reminding them. There is no problem too big, because that was a pretty big problem that God can't solve. This idea of the right hand, the right hand is usually the one that protects. And so what, Dave, what Asaph's saying is the right hand of protection. I'm going to think about God's right hand and what he did. And I, I got to read you this long quote from Spurgeon. It's just too good. This is what he says, I have stood and seen the storm fly over my head, cloud on cloud, blacker and yet blacker, and my spirit crushed and utterly broken until not a hope was left. Then, and only then, have I seen one rift in the midst of the clouds, a lone star shining there. It is the star of Bethlehem, and looking up, all seemed calm beneath my soul, even on that sea. And just then the storm stopped at the sight of the star. There I seemed to see the love of God to be the very guiltiest of men, to the offscoring of sinners and the refuse and the resting as a little child, humbly, simply, and alone upon what the master did for sinners like me on that tree. Oh, joy and peace have come back. Then he goes on, he says, but many and many and many a child of God has known what it is to see every hope blasted and all experience gone and all grace withered. That is apparently so, for it was not really so, because after all, perhaps when we are, we are never richer than we are at our poorest, never so well clad than when we are at our nakedest. Never so near God as when we feel we are nearer to hell if the grace of God does not come and interpose. I love that. I love that he says that when we feel we're at our lowest, that's when God is at his closest. And that's what, that's what Asaph is arguing here. That's what Asaph is recounting from his own personal experience. 
Verses 11 and 12, we see remember. And look what it says. Remember the deeds, the wonders, the works, the mighty deeds. He's bringing forth all of the things that God has done. This is not bootstrapping. It's not pull yourself up, try harder. It's trust in the Spirit. There is a fight for faith, and it involves reminding yourself of what God has done. This word meditate is a cool word. I I really like it. The word meditate actually uh, means to muse, to muse, to think about. It's actually where we get the word music from. When we put words to music, it goes right to your heart, doesn't it? There are certain songs that to this day, they still get me. I can remember the first time I heard it and I feel the feelings still. When we meditate on something, when we muse on something, we take a truth and we begin working it farther down into us. See, meditation for a Christian is way different than meditation for the world. Meditation for the world is empty yourself of whatever. What do you think comes in when you empty yourself of whatever? Instead, the Bible says, no, we're going to focus on something and we're going to work it down into us so that we have it deeper and deeper into us. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, how can the word be in the heart unless it's wrought in by meditation? As a hammer drives a nail to the head, so meditation drives a truth to the heart. We need to push that truth down deep enough that it reaches the heart. And this is where, verse 13, is where the full turn has happened. His thoughts have completely changed. He starts off with, I will, I will, I will. And now he says, you, you, you. In the first eight verses, the word I is 17 times. He's talking about himself. In the last eight verses, 25 times, he says, you. That's the turn. He's turned from, I am focusing on my problem to focusing instead on the one who will pull me through. It's a simple invitation for us. Are we going to change our thinking or are we going to stay where we're at? God is present even when we don't feel it. So this verses 13 through 20 is a successful meditation. And really, this is what we talked about a few weeks ago, this idea of preaching the gospel to yourself. He's taken God's truth and he's reminding himself of the truth as he is working through his problems. And this is, the, this is the way the Bible always lays it out. It's always remember. Not here's the promise of what's going to happen here, but remember what he did there so we know that what's going to happen is for our good. So we have desperation, despair, desperation, determination, and this leads to declaration. Now look at these words from Asaph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What great literary imagination. He takes the water and personifies it and says, this is creation and redemption. This is reality. Look at the creation here. It says, God made these waters and he controls them. He goes, you go there and the waters go, yes, sir. And then look at the redemption. God brought them through the water. Imagine being a young Israelite 
what you've experienced in the last few days, and now you're standing in front of the Red Sea. And people weren't going, oh, God's going to lead us out. It's going to be okay. There were people that were crying. There were people that were stressed. There were people that were upset. They were thinking they were going to have to defend themselves against the Egyptian army. And then all of a sudden, rumbling happens, and the waves begin to separate, and they walk through. And you know, I don't think it's just these perfectly straight waves I think it's tumult and there's things in the water and there's dirt and it's scary and it's fearful. See, the Israelites were not, a, not a, uh, an ocean-going nation. The water always represents bad. It's chaos. It's death. And so this walking through the Red Sea is God showing, I have power over death. The waters and the forces of nature have to do what he says. They have to do what he says. God is the God of impossible situations. And we see that right here. This giant thunderstorm, this water that is raging on either side of them becomes a comfort because there's not a single wave, not a single lightning strike, not a single resounding thunderclap that is not controlled by the God that we serve, the God who loves us, the God who liberated us. So this, per, this, this perspective change is what is needed. See, we're not immune. Despair can lead to a place of desperation. But with the Spirit's help, we can turn that into determination that leads to this declaration of who God is. So now, what do we do? It's decision time. See, there's no conclusion here. Asaph just leaves it hanging. There's no, and then this, they lived happily ever after, or my, my situation got better. We don't get that promise in this psalm. But what we do get is we do get that Asaph's perspective has changed. Asaph stops abruptly. Is it because the confusion and the despair and the doubt are totally gone? We don't know. Seems like it might. But how about us? When we remember and deeply reflect on God's greatest act that puts the exodus to shame, what does that do? Does that cause our confusion, our despair, our doubt to melt away? No, but it sure does diminish it, and it sure does give us hope, doesn't it? And that because of what Jesus has already done, we have hope. We have a God who comes down into our muck, into our mire to walk through with us. And this is the truth from Asaph's experience. And it's what countless Christians have experienced as well. Spurgeon, when he reminded himself of what God had done in Christ, was able to take the steps up to that podium that next Sunday to preach to the families who lost loved ones the last time he preached. He clung to his Savior, who was always right there with him. See, we, we as Christians, we have a better assurance than the Israelites had with their exodus. We have a God who will never leave us and never abandon us. How do we know? Because he didn't do it when he had the opportunity on the cross. He said, I'm staying. And so if he could stay for that, he can stay for what you're going through. So think about it. Think deeply about this one. If God has the power to redeem us from our sins, does he not also have the power to lead us through our troubled times? The answer, mercifully, 
and joyfully is yes, he will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, you did the impossible. You came down here and you died in our place. This is the most amazing truth and we, and we just, we can't get enough of it. Because, Lord, it, it helps us right here and right now with whatever we're dealing with. Lord, maybe, maybe it's something that just we cannot get our minds wrapped around and we just feel pain and anguish. Lord, you have felt that. And you not only have felt that and experienced that, but you are with us right now in it. So, Lord, bring to mind the work that you have done so that when we are looking at the the thing in front of us, and we're hearing our feelings and our, our situation tell us that you're not there, that we would say, no, you are there because I know you died for me, because I know you've brought me through. And Lord, I, I, I'm going to pray that even though it's not promised in this psalm, that Lord, you would take away the situations that people are dealing with in this room, that you would, in your mercy and miracle-working abilities, Remove the pain, remove the whatever that is that is causing us depression and despair. Lord, you're a good God and you love us. So Lord, I, I pray that we would feel that now as we sing your word in your name, amen.